worship and giving. If you'd like to do that, you can do that online. You can do that in the back as we just continue to worship the Lord as early church did. I love that song. I love the bridge. Um, it just talks about uh, here in my heart is in your hand. It really has a lot to do with a, just a confession of your position before the Lord. I love the song because it brings us into the right mind frame. As we desire to study the Word, we're going to have to put, shut off the the world and the dirt that's there and, and what we bring in and just we want communion with the Lord a very close way it just focuses if, if all of you is if more of you is what I need then take everything and so that's our desire like if you would if if you're new with us it's uh, this is our time where we study the word, uh, the Lord by worshiping through his word you can turn in your copy of God's word to second or first Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8 is where we're going to pick up if you're new with us you uh, we set this time aside to do this, and we're going to we're in a continued study, verse by verse, uh, through the pastoral epistles, which is First and Second Timothy and Titus. We've made our way halfway through chapter two, and I'd like to read and introduce our new section, which is uh, normal for us, which continues to give Timothy some guidelines in this letter from Paul for public worship, in a section we've entitled "Men and Women." So, look at verse eight, if you would. We'll read all the way down through verse fifteen as we really seek the Lord today and to know what he'd have to say to us. Uh, Therefore, verse 1, men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Verse 9, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, and not with hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, Verse 12, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. 13, it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Verse 15, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith, love, sanctity, with self-restraint. Stop right there. There was a perfect man who met a perfect woman, and after a perfect courtship, they had a perfect wedding, their life together, of course, perfect. One snowy, stormy Christmas Eve, this perfect couple was driving along a winding road when they noticed someone at the roadside in distress. Being the perfect couple, they stopped to help, and there stood Santa Claus with a huge bundle of toys. Not wanting to disappoint the children on this eve of Christmas, the perfect couple, loaded Santa up with his toys in their vehicle, and soon they were driving along delivering toys. Unfortunately, the driving conditions deteriorated and the perfect couple in Santa Claus had an accident and only one of them survived the accident who was the survivor. Well, the perfect woman, of course, because she's the only one that really existed in the first place. Everyone knows there's no Santa Claus and there's no such thing as a perfect man. Now, there's a secondary ending to this. I'm hesitant to say it, but um, so if there was no perfect man and no Santa Claus, then the perfect woman must have been driving, which explains why there was a car accident to begin with. <laughs> and I say that joke just because, you know, the passage that we're in is uh, obviously one that if we weren't teaching verse by verse, I would never teach because they're difficult. Uh, they're not difficult because they're, not hard to under- because they're hard to understand. They're not. They're easy to understand. They're difficult because they've been maligned and misused and, and either ignored or used as a club for many, many, many eons. And when you come as a pastor and you, you want to teach through it and get an accurate understanding of it, you have to wade through all of that and you just end up getting that all over you. But I want to tell a joke kind of to diffuse the whole thing. It, it, this, it, this passage can bring no small amount of questions, which is fine, uh, and then a good bit of contention, which isn't fine, and it isn't my desire for the second one, but, and I certainly want to answer the first one. So I just want to diffuse any of that, but I want to pick up in verse 8, if you would, First Timothy chapter 2, and you remember last week, this is where we left off, and this is a transition verse, so we're going to make that transition and let us uh, take a look at, um, at kind of how that works into this whole thing. So look at Second uh, Timothy 2, 8, therefore I want men in every place to, to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now last week we, we stopped right there, and that was in corporate prayer time, and we know verses 1 through 8 dealt with prayer inside the corporate meeting of the church. And of course, this letter deals with how to conduct yourself in the household of faith, which is the church, the pillar and support of the truth. 
First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. So we understand why the letters were written. They're written so people know how to conduct themselves in church. In particular, of course, this is written to the church in Ephesus, led now by Timothy. And so it's an important uh, passage, which is still relevant for us today. We're still in the church age. So what is said here, we get to understand and, and incorporate. And this transition, as you can see uh, into guidelines, uh, in this guidelines for public worship, transitions us from prayer to the roles of men and women. And the part that we looked at last week was the second part of the verse, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And the passage is tied to our first seven verses by the word therefore. So the, part, the, the understanding that we had as we looked at that, that was our corporate prayer principle number 10. Men who pray corporately are to be those who are living outwardly and inwardly holy lives. And that was just kind of obvious with the way that they're described. So those qualifications then are to be brought to bear in prayer, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And we saw that the point here was not primarily that when you pray, you have to lift your hands up in the air, although that is a biblical prayer posture, so you can't just dismiss that outright. Uh, the Jews did that, certainly how they played in the temple. We see, I gave you a lot of examples of prayer time where, uh, as they prayed, they lifted up their palms to heaven and prayed. And, but we saw particularly, though, Point not being necessarily the, the posture of prayer is that when you pray, you have to have uh, holy hands. And we took a look at what that meant. And the hand is, of, of course, the symbol of the activities of life. That's what you have. Pretty much everything you do is done with your hands to some extent. Most of the things uh, involve that. And the point is, whoever prays ought to be the kind of person who is living a holy life. That's the whole idea. That's the point. Clean hands or holy hands from our passage is the sense of pure living. And that adjective holy is the Greek word hosios, which is unpolluted and unstained, not hagios, separate or set apart. And so the idea really has to do with what's physically happening right now. And so when men are praying corporately for these things that we've studied, that for all men everywhere, for leaders and all in authority, uh, that um, we, in godliness and dignity for the church, and we can live a tranquil and, and peaceful life, those kinds of things, people who are praying that, uh, they have to be the kinds of men who live a of life unstained by the world. And that's the outer living that's visible. And then the part that without wrath and dissension is simply that that has to do with inner qualifications, men who are not hypocrites. In other words, they look good on the outside, but on the inside, uh, they're not pure-hearted. And so the idea is, is that this is a sincere faith. This is the clear conscience we saw in chapter one that's supposed to be part of the purpose of the church of teaching is to develop a sincere faith a clear conscience. And so anger is a bad attitude about something or someone. Dissensions, we saw last time, diagolosismos is where we get our word dialogue. That has to do with thoughts or reasonings or imaginations, things that are being said inside, things that are being said outside. So pure living and a pure heart has to be the pattern of life for those who pray in the corporate setting of the church. And now we're going to look at another qualification for corporate prayer in the main worship service. And we've seen it already in verse 8. And principle number one in guidelines for public worship concerning the roles of men and women now overlap this verse, and I think you'll be able to see that in just a second. And the first one is that uh, men are to do the praying. And so men are to do the praying, and we can see that very clearly, although it just seems like kind of a, just a backwards way of backing into it, but men are to do the praying. So therefore, I want men in every place to pray, and that we can't just ignore what that says. So we're going to take a look at that, and we're going to see illustrated in these passages that follow a complementarian nature of men and women in the church. So here's the context. He says, I want the men to pray in every place, and that seems clear enough, uh, but many today argue against male leadership in the church or exclusive male leadership in the church, and, and we'll say, you know, see, the Lord's just saying all believers, that, that, that thing, that man is just everybody, that's human, the human uh, human race are to pray. But the word is not the word that's used for human race, anthropos. The word is andros. That's the Greek word that's used most of the time with reference to males as in relation to the gender. And so uh, that's translated 156 times in that way. Husband, 50 times, six times as sir, and once, time, once as fellow. So it's not the word for mankind, anthropos, the human race, Human race there is translated man or men, uh, indicating uh, male and female. 
and it includes all the human individuals most of the time used to distinguish. A lot of times you'll see this in the 500 plus times it's used, distinguish people from animals and plants or, or from God and Christ, it's humans, from angels in context. And a lot of times it's connected with this notion of weakness and, and we're led into mistake and prompted into sin. And so we see it used in that context. That's not the word we have here. And so just as a few examples of that, uh, and I've, I've put mankind in, although the Bible uses, uh, uses the word man or men, but in Titus chapter 3, verse 4, when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for man, that's the word man, appeared, but it's the word anthropos, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So God didn't just love men only. He didn't just love Andros, just the male portion of the world. He sent the Savior for mankind. He sent the Savior for the human race. But that's not the word we have in 1 Timothy 2.8. Again, we can see the other word, which is sometimes substituted in here in Acts chapter 17, verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of men, that's the word there, although it's the word anthropos, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So God obviously didn't just create men, that would be pretty bad and lonely and only one generation because you're not going any farther past that. So we didn't do that and it's, it's obvious. What we have in 1 Timothy 2.8 is the, the word the Bible reserves almost exclusively for act, actual males. And so what he's saying here is when, when the church, so it's not marginal reading, and what he's saying here is that when the church comes together and it's duly constituted worship, men are to do the praying. And then there's this little key phrase here, in every place. I want men in every place to pray. What's that mean? Well, it just means that in every corporate service setting, no matter what church, and no matter what era, it doesn't matter if it's Ephesus or uh, Philadelphia, it doesn't matter where it is, that this is supposed to happen. So it's not just limited to, be, to, to here in Ephesus, which is also an argument uh, erroneously made about the passive. Which Paul's just talking about Ephesus. That doesn't extend anywhere else. Well, that's not the case because he says in every place. He's not just addressing a problem in Ephesus, which by that reasoning would limit then its application of this passage to a local first century church. And we're going to see this very commonly throughout these passages that deal with order in the church and the complementarian types of ways that men and women are to serve. And we'll look a little closer at some passages that illustrate those guidelines later, particularly in our passage in verses 13 and 14, and you can read ahead there and kind of see the universal application. If it has anything to do with created order, if it has to do with anything what the angels think, then it's not just local. It has to be bigger. And so we're going to see that consistency and in interpretation here as we go through. But the point is, when the church comes together, it's under the leadership of men, which is just obvious. And the word is not just exclusively leadership, as in official titles of elder and deacon. It certainly includes church leadership, and we're going to see other qualifications of those leaders in chapter 3 as we move out of chapter 2. But here it says, when they come together for the assembly, it's men who are to rise and pray, and that's the norm for the church. And when the church meets, the men do the praying, and that's a very strong statement made here. It's very, very simple. It's easy to just kind of pass on by, but that's precisely what's being said. And it was widely accepted church really until relatively recently. And by the way, the fact that God has set leadership in the church and those who are in submission to that leadership of men, uh, that shouldn't threaten anybody because we're equal spiritually before the Lord. And this is a, another passage that's used erroneously to kind of try to contravene what Paul says. And it'd be interesting to say, okay, Paul in Ephesus wrote one thing and then contradicted himself in Galatians, which is not the case. But in Galatians in three, chapter 3, verse 28, it says, this, as we understand our position before the Lord spiritually, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. This just has to do with the application of salvation to everyone. There's no, there's no uh, hierarchy of who gets to be saved and who is spiritual. It's, it's not more important or better than the other. A believer who has a Jewish background isn't better than a believer who has a Gentile background, which would seem to be the case. A Jew that's completed would be better, but the Lord says no. And, and a believer who was a slave is not less of a believer than someone who's never been a slave any more than a believer who is a male is not better or have a better standing before the Lord than a believer who is a female. That's just the general understanding of that passage. But the church, by the Lord's design, put under the leadership of godly men, has fallen out of favor. And, and it, in its place, 
an egalitarian approach which has permeated our culture, of course, that women can do whatever men can do and there's no difference between them. And that approach, of course, has found its way into the church and has, I think, really in my opinion, become the most flagrant and obvious rejection of God's authority and biblical authority for conduct in the church that's in the culture today. The most flagrant, I think, uh, uh, egregious violation. And we'll look at some more examples as we get further into these eight verses. But usually, when these verses are read, some will say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, I, I, I know another passage that says men, uh, that women can pray and they can, and they can teach. So let's look at it. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. And if you were with us, you know that we went through this pretty extensively as we went through First and Second Corinthians. But I'll just refresh your memory just, base, uh, just very, very uh, simply. Uh, the passage says this, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. So obviously she's praying, and that for prophesied teaching or uh, recounting what God has said, um, disgraces her head, for she is one and the same of the woman whose head is shaved. And we went over this quite extensively in our study, uh, but some will say, you know, doesn't this verse mean that a woman can pray and teach or foretell? And, and the answer is, yes, of, of course they can. The instruction here is simply dealing with the Corinthian culture and how extremely short hair, which is, was an indication of, in the pagan culture of throwing off male leadership, shouldn't be part of the culture of believing women in the church. And we dealt with all of this very, very extensively, and I won't go back there because it's online and you can listen to it again if you'd like to, because it all of our time today just to explain this passage again and make application. I don't want to do that. So in this illustration, though, if she does pray or she proclaims God's truth simply, she is to do so with her role as a woman under the leadership of man being made clear. And so I think we can see this. And so he finishes up this section, much like our passage, where Paul in First Timothy says, in every place, which is, this just applies everywhere, all the churches. Here in First Corinthians chapter 11, he says to the Corinthian church basically the same thing. In verse 16, he says to them, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, mark it, nor have the churches of God. In other words, it's the same for all the churches. I mean, if you don't like it and you want to argue about it, well, then if you go somewhere else, you're going to see they're doing exactly the same thing. All the churches are in every place, basically indicating the same kind of thing. So now the question for 1 Corinthians can be addressed. Where is she able to do these things? Because that's really the question. Obviously, she can do them. So where is she able to do them? And you just go ahead a few chapters in 1 Corinthians to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And again, I won't go through this extensively because we did already, but it's a great illustration to help us understand this consistent teaching throughout the Word of God that aligns perfectly with itself. Because as you teach the Word of God, you're supposed to make a straight cut. And I think you understand that. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed. Here it is, rightly dividing the Word of truth. This just means this. If you cut out a piece here and say this is what it means, you should be able to pick it up and you should be able to set it down in a passage that's talking about the same thing and there should be no conflict, and that's what we're doing. And I think you understand that if you've been here long enough, the Bible explains the Bible. But in 1 Corinthians 14, 34, here's what it says. Women are to keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper for a woman to speak in church. So all you have to do then is just compare the three passages, and you have the answer to the question. Women can pray, and women can proclaim the word, but not in a duly constituted assembly of the church in its official worship. And that's obviously confirmed right here in verse 11. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection. Don't allow them to teach or usurp authority over men, but be in silence. Now, here's the question. Is that all the time? 24 hours a day, all life long? No, of course not. They just can't do it during a main worship service in the church. And that's very consistent all the way across the New Testament. And we're going to get back to confirming this understanding later in our passage. But just as a footnote, you know, a service that is convened for a special purpose of prayer, a small group Bible study, those kinds of things, as long as men are leading it and women are not taking authority over a man, there'd be no biblical reason why a woman couldn't pray. Okay? What they're talking about here, and we need to understand this context, is in the official worship of the church, the constituted worship where the church comes together as a whole and worshiping together, these are the parameters of what's to be done. So principle number one in guidelines for public worship concerning the roles of men and women, men are to do the praying. And principle number two in guidelines for public worship, men who are leading in this way are to have a lifestyle unstained by the world, not harboring any anger or rebellion. So now, I know this is kind of a repeat because we looked at it at the end of our passage, our, our time last time, but this is a transition verse. It helps us include uh, both lists of guidelines for conduct. So I think you can see why we're doing it. We see it at the tail end of 
conduct in prayer time because it has some qualifications for that. And then we see it overlap as we get into the roles of men and women, and it has something to say about that. So I say both of them, even though they're overlap, it gives us handles then to make that transition into, okay, now we're talking about the roles of men and women and not talking about prayer time. And so that's why we did that. So, uh, so men, you know, can't be openly sinful or have an anger issue or be argumentative. So there are these qualifications for leading in prayer in the church. And these are very strict. And sometimes women say, well, man, it just seems like the Lord's a lot more strict on women than men. I, I would tend to disagree with that. There are some expectations, uh, equal expectations for men as there are for women. And we just looked at some of them. Listen, you can't stand up and pray in the church if either of those things we talked about, either the, the outward activity of her life or the way you talk to people is in conflict with what the Word of God says. You can't do it. And, and so because of, those, because of those qualifications then, some in the church who are men would be excluded from leading in worship in the public worship time. And we're looking at more an exhaustive list of, of official leaders in the church in about 14 verses, and we're going to see that some of that list will exclude from leadership men that can't lead the church in those ways as a deacon or as an elder because they don't meet those standards. So they're very, very clear requirements. Now look at verse 9, which begins Paul's instruction to women in the church. And this is how it starts. It starts with an adverb. It says, likewise, hasotos is just as or in the same way or in like manner. So we're still talking about conduct in the church. I think you can see that. He's talking about conduct in the church for men, and now he says likewise, so same. We're still talking about conduct, what can happen in the service, how it has to be, how it has to be conduct, conducted. Um, we're talking about women. And, and just like the very direct requirements for the lifestyle of men, um, holiness and conduct without anger or rebellious talk, we have our third principle of guidelines for public worship, and the roles of men and women. Women are also to give careful attention. And here's our next topic, to lifestyle. So Paul says this, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly garments. And make a couple of observations there because that has been just completely messed up many times over on both sides. And I think it's important to point out that Paul categorically forbidding women to style their hair or wear jewelry or nice clothing. In fact, what he says is, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. And that adorn is a verb, cosmeto, present active infinitive. And that's where we get our word cosmetic. And so I think we see the direction it's going. It means to put in order, uh, to arrange, to make ready. Uh, the root of it is the word cosmos, which scripture uses to describe the arrangement of the heavenly host. So it has a really great orientation. So Paul says, I want you to adorn yourself, and that word has to do with how the Lord's ordered everything and how the Lord has beautified everything. And so Paul's not forbidding women to style their hair or jewelry or nice clothing, but he says that women in the corporate meeting are to adorn themselves, it says, here it is, modestly, ahidos, it's a sense of reverence and honor, um, discreetly, sophosone, that has the word, it has to do with soberness, and so and in the context of this next part, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly garments. And this is where people get caught up. Well, so what should I do? Just, be, just plain, whatever. And that's not the issue. And, and like we always say, you know, the scripture has a historical context. If you don't understand the historical context along with grammatical, you're going to have a hard time figuring out exactly what it's going to say because there's always a connection to the past. And as we said many times before, a Bible teacher's job is to figure out what it meant to the first hearer and why it meant that because that's what it still means now. And there may be some applica further application, but there's one translation, one understanding. And so when we get back here, we know that this is rooted in first century Rome. So let's look at why Paul said what he said. And we've looked at this before, and I've showed you even pictures of it before, but if you remember, during Paul's time, coins that were in circulation at the time, many of them depicted the Roman court. And in those depictions of coins, uh, women were pictured with these elaborate hairstyles, these extravagant dress. This was Roman court, and so hair was seen as much as an indication of wealth and social status as it was of taste and fashion. And they would weave all their wealth, a lot of their wealth into their hair. They would do it so people would see how, how, uh, how wealthy and well-off they were. Hairstyles displayed the wearer's wealth to a maximum. And that was all the rage, to put as much in your hair as you could. And, and having a complex, unnatural hairstyle was preferred during that time, as opposed to having one that was simple, because uh, the complex one would illustrate wealth, 
and, and, and be aware we could afford to do it, and they could afford to have the, take the time to style their hair, and so this is very, very popular, and show off their jewels and show off their gold. So what Paul is saying here then, if you connect that, uh, and what he's forbidding is the imitation then of the elaborate new hairstyles, putting on display this excessive luxury, promiscuous, unrestrained, this extravagant depravity, this decadence, the shamelessness of the Roman court. Because when people would do it in the church, it would draw their attention, their eyes to, wow, they're very wealthy. They must really, really uh, have it well off. I wish I was like them. And then, and then that just kind of spreads through the church. And so he didn't want the women there to mimic what was going on in a decadent, shameless, depraved, promiscuous Roman court. So if you want to make a connection for today, and here's where you can make another application. Obviously, we're not styling our hair like they did in the Roman court. But it would appear, I think, a good connection today, an equivalent application would be to warn believing women away from the imitation of style set by Hollywood and promiscuous, decadent media personalities and culture. I think the very same thing could apply. Why? Because when you go into church and you look like that, what are people thinking about? They're thinking about that instead of godliness. And the whole thing, and every men's conduct and the dress of the women at this point, is, is those instructions are given so as not to detract from the gospel mission. Right? We're going to come back to what the whole point of this first section of First Timothy 2 is, is um, what is the purpose of the church and what do we pray for and what are we supposed to do? And so this is not legalism. This is not, okay, don't do this, don't do that. What we do, we are to do, both men and women, is to enhance our carrying out of God's desire for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so Paul is directing the Ephesian church back to effectiveness and away from worldliness, and, and then prayers are offered for the lost, where lives are offered uh, up to reach the lost, and where the church ministry is conducted with the right people at the right times in the right places, and whether we understand it yet or not, it's all the way through lifestyle and attitudes men and women reveal. You know, you adorn the gospel by working hard, right? We understand that. Um, you can adorn the gospel by dressing in such a way that you're not drawing attention to yourself and, and connecting with the culture. So let's look at the next verse, and then we'll kind of begin to, to uh, put these all together in a coherent manner. This is what we try to do at the beginning. I want to lay some groundwork so you understand where these things are coming from, so you can understand why Paul is having to teach this way. Look at the next verse, and it has, it's, it, it's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Do you see it? Um, by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. That's, that's where we're headed. So instead of modeling the decadent culture, women are to adorn themselves with reverence and with soberness and with good, uh, by means of good works, as is proper for women taking, making claim to godliness. So that's a really great rounded passage, and it gives some uh, reasons why we do what we do and why uh, it's important. Now, I want, to, I want you, there's a great illustration here that is perfectly parallel to this. It's in 1 Peter chapter 3. So I'd like you to turn there, and we're only going to be there for just a minute. 1 Peter 3. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 3. If you're a note taker, that's that last little takeaway, kind of an application of today's equivalency of kind of how we model our style and do what we do. But First Peter chapter 3, verse 3. And we're going to read through verse 6. Same type of language. I think you see it right away. Paul's talking about it. Peter's talking about it. He says this. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. Verse 4. Not merely. Not just that. Okay. But other things. Verse 4. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Verse 5, for this way, in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Verse 6, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children, if you do what's right without being frightened by any fear. So Paul is not forbidding the wearing of jewelry. He's not forbidding the taking care of yourself any more than Peter is forbidding the wearing of nice clothes. Definitely do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But in both passages, the best adornment of all is what? Godly character. That's the best adornment of all. Peter says a gentle and quiet spirit. Paul says reverence and soberness. And if you want to call your husband, Lord, go ahead with a small L, okay? I always tell, I tease Laura from time to time, you know, you're supposed to be calling me Lord. 
And I have a master's degree in annoying, so I can really, really lay it on, okay? And uh, of course, we get a big laugh out of that. And, but the idea there is respect. You know, we understand that we, we love and we sacrificially give ourselves for our wives, and our wives love us and respect us. And that's the proper balance and all that. And that's why you see that. But I always joke about that because um, that's funny. And my wife is, is super smart, and she gets on top of that pretty quick and has a really funny quip back to me. But uh, we'll get into that. <clears throat> But 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, it says, by means of good works. So, so Paul says, reverence and soberness. Peter says, gentle and quiet spirit. First uh, then says, by means of good works is proper for women making a claim to godliness. So here it is. Pulls it back. What is your claim? What's important to you? You're making a claim to godliness. Then it's going to look a certain way. You don't get to self-describe that or self-define it. And these are things that really bring attractiveness. And the scriptures then, and I'm going to use some illustrations here for just a few minutes. The scriptures have multiple examples. I'm just going to just hit some high points of women, godly women, whose good works and character lived long after they died. And this is really cool, and I love this. And you can just read this, you can miss this, but I think because we're looking at it, I want to draw attention to it, and you'll see how wonderful it is. So in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, and when we studied verse by verse through Romans, we got to this ending part where he's making all these addresses, he's talking to individual people, and we looked up all these names and, and had a really fun time with that. I won't do that today, but we're just going to see some of the things that he says. So these are recorded, beloved, forever in the Word of God. So... For eternity, the Lord says, none of it's going to pass away. We'll always have it. And he has established these women as ones that he thinks are great. And that's what I want you to be thinking about. What, what's our purpose? What we do? Why do we do it? And, and what does the Lord think is great? Because obviously, as a man, you know, we want to be strong and be of good courage and act like men and those kinds of things. We want to be the kind of man that God wants us to be. And, and our women, I know, want to be the kind of women God wants them to be. And that's not just arbitrary. It's in here. So let's look at it. I commend you, he says, to, to you, your, our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is in Chantria, verse 2, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and that you help her in whatever manner she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. And verse 3, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only I, don't do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. So, what is Phoebe known for? She's a servant of the church. That's the first thing he says about her. And, you know, he could talk about other things, of course, and he does, uh, things that are negative. Um, Eodia and Syntyche tell them not to argue with each other. That's forever in Scripture too. But here he says, the first thing he says about Phoebe, she's a servant of the church. It's just a very, it's a very general term to just describe her general disposition as somebody who has given her life to serve the church. And, and that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. Why? For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself. That's her, that's her lifestyle. She's a helper. She makes sure things happen inside the church for the kingdom. And Greek, Prisca, and Aquila, what do they know? They're fellow workers in Christ. Paul pulls them right up to the equal level of himself. Fellow workers who, for my life, risked their own necks. They weren't, they weren't selfish. They went right out and made sure Paul had what he needed, even to their own uh, risk. Not only do I give thanks, but all the, all the churches of the Gentiles know what she's done. So forever recorded in Scripture, Phoebe and Prisca for getting as close to the world as they could? No. For dressing as drably as possible to show they're really holy? No. Romans chapter 16, verse 6. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. You don't know this, but Mary in the background, Paul says, has been doing a lot of work. Please greet her. She's there at the church. They don't even understand how much she's done. We have a lot of women around here, and that it describes them perfectly. They work hard in the background. Nobody even knows. Acts chapter 16, verse 14. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabric, a worshiper of God. So she was a Jew, worshiped the Lord appropriately, and then now she comes to faith, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So she... She, she repented and came to faith. And when she and her household had been baptized, so they all followed uh, the teaching, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, if you know I'm really converted, 
um, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. What'd she do? She displayed hospitality, and she got to host Paul and Barnabas. That's pretty cool. She just came to faith, and she realized right away she's supposed to show hospitality, and she did it. And Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, you probably remember, as we're instructed in the church, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. That's what hospitality means, entertaining strangers in your home. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. You have an opportunity all throughout the church age to show hospitality. You might be doing it to an angel who's impersonating a person. So, Acts chapter 9, verse 36, again, this is one I really like. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated in Greek, Dorcas, this woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. Did you catch that? What's she known for? Abounding in deeds of kindness and charity. Here it is. Which she continually did. It wasn't just kind of once in a while she did a, a nice thing. This was kindness and charity, and she continually did it. Enshrined forever in the Word of God, forever we'll be able to read about this woman who will be in heaven. And see, we're just so used to letting the culture set the standards for adornment and the standards for conduct, aren't we? And it's just so hard to shake that off. But I would tell you, beloved, just in the little bit we've looked at before, teach your young ladies early about modesty and reverence and about godly conduct and deeds of kindness and love and let them continually do them. And that she's God's treasure and, and those things are precious in his sight. And she is too. And she was uniquely formed to perform these wonderful acts of service that only she can do. Teach them early about that. Don't let your child model the promiscuous, decadent, rebellious, unrestrained culture in their clothing or their behavior. And listen, be aware of that tendency. It's like I told you men before. You know, guys have the tendency to just to put sports above all things. And if you're better than someone, you belittle people who are, uh, are under you. Arrogance is rampant and with young kids. Talking when they shouldn't be talking. Men, guys, little guys coming up, interrupting, and, and just wanting everybody to listen to what they have to say. Listen, you need to put an end to that right away, guys. Arrogant young men don't grow up to be godly young men, okay? Get on top of that and, and watch your guys, what they put in front of their eyes. That should be a very short lease. All those kinds of... of uh, Electronic kinds of things. And men are very susceptible to those kinds of things. They shouldn't have unrestricted access to electronics. Not because we're legalistic, because that is a cesspool. And I say this a lot in premarital counseling. You know, if you let your kid have, un your man have unrestricted access to electronics and surf the net, whatever he was, just imagine this. It's this big garbage bin full of rancid garbage. That's his mind. And someday, he's going to walk this little girl down the aisle, and she has no idea that she's marrying a dump. She has no idea what's in his mind. She doesn't know how, what, how he's going to respond to her, see? And it's the same way with little girls. They are really attracted to fashion and culture and, and how they present themselves and tight clothes because that's what they see and body image and all of that. Very susceptible. Be aware See, be aware. That's why Paul says, don't model the decadent society of the Roman court. Don't model what we have in our culture now. Teach little girls about good works and gentleness. I hear this a lot. And forgive me if I, if I make you mad. She's fierce. She sets her own standard. She's drop-dead gorgeous. She's sassy. She's sarcastic. Listen, beloved. None of those things are here, okay? None of them. And then you say that to your daughter all the time, and then our narcissistic society will cultivate that fleshly interest and then attend it with a thousand selfies of you in the most immodest position, her in the most immodest position possible. Listen, that's the way it goes, okay? If you, if you, if you multiply your compliments for flesh and never for character, if you put emphasis on whether or not she looks pretty, not that she shouldn't look pretty, she should. Don't dress her in culottes, okay? That was big in 80s. That's so awful. That's not, that's not what it's saying. She can adorn herself like the Lord adorns the world. You can make her beautiful. Just don't make that the thing. Make the thing deeds of kindness and love, which she always does. Make the thing that she understands who she is before the Lord. And the Lord has made her that way. You know, all this, 
narcissistic, self-absorbed kind of things that, you know, and little girls are very, they're very taken by that. And that, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, little girls look forward to getting married. They want to get dressed up. They want, the, they want a ring. They, they want it. Most little ones do. They look about, look for, listen, guys never think about marriage, okay? And to, that's why it always happens magically. Like, you know, you propose to your wife and the next thing you know, you're getting married and all that stuff took care of itself, right? But girls think about that all the time. And that's, that's not bad. So we have to, but we have to focus that, see, because we don't want the opposite of what we see here to be what our little girls um, tend to. This is the woman God thinks is great. Listen to the language. The imperishable quality. The imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Okay? Not she's fierce. Not she sets her own standard. Not she's drop-dead gorgeous. Not she's sassy and sarcastic. Those are not imperishable qualities. Those tend towards the world. The imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is market, mark this, precious in the sight of God. Who are we trying to please anyway? For in this way, the former times that the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves that way too. That's the standard. The holy women that came before, what they did. Now listen, and I want to make sure this is clear. Paul's not insisting on drab dress. And Peter isn't saying no jewelry or makeup. Because even drab dress and no jewelry and makeup can make a statement drawing attention to your self-proclaimed piety. Just like the monks of old used to say, I've never taken off any of my clothes. I'm just going to keep putting them on the outside. I've never taken a bath. And that shows my piety. Well, great. And you're also stinky. Stay far away from me, right? Yeah, that's it. you're not holier because you strip off things or because you keep... You know, you don't take a bath or because you're, you dress yourself ugly and you never comb your hair and, and whatever. You're not more holy that way. It's not saying that at all. It's just saying, what's the attitude, the prevailing things that we cultivate? A gentle and quiet spirit, imperishable qualities, and precious in the sight of the Lord. And holy women of old also hoped in God and did that same thing. So adorn yourself like the Lord ordered the stars, not like worldly women. And look at verse 10. But rather... By means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. If you claim godliness, this is what it looks like, okay? It's not demanding your rights. It's not egalitarianism. It's not saying I can do whatever a man can do. Listen, not only are those things not true, that is not godliness, okay? And if, if good works is your adornment, you'll adorn the gospel. In fact, earlier in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, Peter says this to the church, again, exactly the same kind of language. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word, mark this, by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Did you catch that? So imagine then, this is a scenario. So first century, the gospel's going out, going out to all these pagan societies, all these cities with these temples, and it's being preached powerfully, and people are responding. And so in certain houses, you have, a, in this particular one, you have, they came, they heard the gospel, and who responded? The woman did. So she's living according to what God wants her to do, and she's married to some schmo who is still going to the temple, and he's, he, he's not like all the other godly people who are in the church, right? And um, he doesn't obey the word. That's what it says. He's not born again. It says they're disobedient to the word. So they're not conforming their lifestyle to what the word says. They're doing all kinds of stuff. And you remember as we went through 1 Corinthians 7, remember people were saying to Paul, should I divorce this dude? I mean, I don't want to be married to this guy. I want to be married to a, a Christian guy. And Paul said, no, you don't divorce them, right? As long as they want to stay with you as an unbeliever, you stay with them. Why? Because how do you know if your conduct won't lead them to faith? And this is precisely what Peter says here. So this is married relationship. They've repented. They follow Christ. She's married to an unbeliever. And let me tell you something. It won't be her fierceness and her independent sassiness and her sarcasm that's going to win over the unredeemed. What is it? The imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Your chaste and respectful behavior. You might win them without even a word. Why? Because he knew you before you came to faith. And now you are significantly different. And he might come to faith just by, without a word. You mean it wouldn't be better to nag him every day? No. Without a word, it says. You should just live this way. You might see your husband come to faith if he's disobedient to the word. That type of behavior is also supposed to, what's supposed to happen in public, in the public worship. 
And we can see from women who gave us godly examples, it it extends to life outside of the corporate worship too, just the way you conduct yourself in society. Now, let's look at verses 11 and 12 because we're we're out of time. I'll wrap up for today. Verse 11 says this. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. So principle number four, guidelines for public worship, women and women. Women are to take on the attributes of a disciple. That's the whole idea of, of receive instruction. It is present, active, imperative. Montano, the verb montano. It's related to the noun mathetes, which we know as disciple. So the idea is that a woman is to quietly become a learner of the word. And again, quietness makes its way into Paul's language. She's carried along by the Holy Spirit. So again, in the public corporate church meeting, what's she doing? She is learning and becoming a better disciple, and she's doing it in quietness. And then, look at verse 12. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Where? Inside the corporate official meeting of the church. And that's principle number five. Guidelines for public worship for men and women. Women are not to do the teaching or have control or authority over the service. Now, I have stated that and restated it in just the most forthright and candid an exact way that it can be expressed. It's not adorned. We didn't soften it. It just says what it says. And we understand its context, and we understand its application. And, and, and let me just tell you, this expression was pretty much universally accepted by the church until around the late 1960s. And then you, had, you begin to have this cultural revolution, a sexual revolution, and over that 50 years it went it started to fall out of favor and then into where we are now, into hostility. But the issue is, as you have to have authority and submission in all dimensions of life, and the fact that women and men are rebelling against this is really reflective of the unbiblical nature of our society, which has salted the church. And it's a sad thing when the church finds itself in the midst of an atmosphere that, of that kind of rebellion against a clear mandate from the Lord of the church, but that's what we have. So we have to look at it and we have to address it because it's still part of God's express guidelines for conduct in the church. And so I'm going to stop right here because we're out of time. And you might think, oh my word, you just read that. That's where you're going to stop. Yeah, because I want you to come back next week because we're going to look more at this. There's a whole lot of things that have been thrown up as reasons why this is no longer applicable. We're going to look at the majority of them because I want you to be able to be knowledgeable about that, what they're saying, what verses are being misapplied, and then how do we understand those verses correctly and how they don't contradict what we've already seen. And so um, there's a lot of things we want to look at, some prevailing notions of progressive theologians, and we're going to bring those things into really hard contact with the clear teaching of the Word of God. And not because we're using that as a club, not because we're trying to create some atmosphere uh, that is oppressive, but just because we want to be biblical about how we do what we do. And we want to know how to apply that. And it's tricky. And so we want to do that and, uh, and come back last week and, and take a look at it. All right, so let's pray. We're going to have uh, a quick um, update from our men who are in Brazil. So we want to pray, and then we'll get to that. So we back. Thank you, Lord, uh, for your word today. We thank you that you're holy and that it is holy and set apart and given to us, not as a bunch of divine suggestions, but particularly as where we are, as how the church is to, be, is to operate. We know it's alive and sharp, and we're blessed to have it. And we know what you want. You just told us so clearly it can't really be anything but that. And as we've just seen, even the small cross-section of other passages, they're basically saying the exact same thing. And so the question is now, Lord, that uh, we really want your Holy Spirit to give us reminders to be obedient to these kinds of things and to change the way we think because we know what you've asked and we want to do it more faithfully and we know that as we do it faithfully we're going to begin to see the outcomes uh, both in corporate prayer life and in the outreach of the church and in the conduct in the church uh, will be all these good outcomes that you say uh, you will give in due time if we don't faint And so, Father, we also pray as we come corporately for the lost, as uh, Jacob did earlier, we pray for men everywhere and for leaders and all who are in authority. We certainly have been on our minds this week, Father, as we've been uh, watching elections all over the place and 
and uh, things happening perhaps that we wished wouldn't have happened. And, but Lord, we, we recognize as we pray for those who are leaders over us, for those in the White House, for those in the Congress and Senate, uh, Lord, we, we want them to, the ones to be elected or for those who are there to conduct themselves in such a way that we can live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and sincerity. And Father, we know that this is our prayer and we desire for these peaceful things to be true so that the church can continue to operate so we just trust you we know that you have all these things in mind and that you desire for the church to pray this way and the people you put in authority are the ones that you pick and you can put even the lowliest of people in authority but you work out your own plan and we recognize and are not and we're not ignorant of the fact that you're moving all things towards an end a culmination and then the changing of all of this back to uh, the glorious state where your son will rule and will get to live and worship and serve him forever. As a father, in all these things we remember, uh, this is what you want to pray for. And you want us to pray too that the church will live in godliness and dignity, that will be aligned properly with your word and, and not uh, contrary to what it says for us to do. And then in dignity before the world as we live, help us to be um, winsome and loving and meeting of needs and the kinds of believers who love our neighbor like ourselves so that we don't end up bringing the gospel into, into disrepute, but instead making the gospel be adorned. And so, Father, we pray that our church, Berean, will conduct themselves uh, in godliness and then in dignity. And, Father, we thank you today for our passage. We thank you for the difficult part of it, which is just, just falls hard on our ears Lord, we know that you have our best interest at heart. We pray for the moms and dads who are raising little girls uh, in this culture, so permeated with narcissism and with, uh, with uh, wickedness and, and uh, bad behavior modeled in body image. And Lord, I pray that you'll make them wise, wise beyond even what they even understand about the culture, that they might uh, see these things and be able to help their young lady be the type of young lady that can be recorded that we see here kind that's well-pleasing to you, imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, precious in your sight. That's our prayer today, and we're very grateful for the opportunity to come and to uh, delight ourselves in worship and in prayer and in and song and in giving and in your word. And Lord, I pray that uh, this is just what we do at home every day too, Father, as we open up your word in our quiet time. You might bless us in that reading and help us to conform ourselves to that image. And uh, as we pray at home, we begin to expand out past just our own, our own uh, borders, but on out. That we might see the kind of results we want to see in the church individually. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said.